Welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. My name is Todd McLaughlin. My goal is to bring inspirational speakers to the mic to give you some upliftment and inspire you. Visit us at nativeyogacenter.com. Let's get started. Welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm pleased to bring Michael Shea onto the podcast today. And Michael, you're a return uh, guest. And I just, I think I would, I would like to do this with you every week. I know you're <laughs> quite busy. And so I'm just very happy to have you here today. And um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I would like to come every week, but I'm on sabbatical right now. So this <laughs> Yes, well, this is <clears throat> this will suffice, and I'd like to get some of the clerical duties out of the way to begin. I just want to l announce to everybody that Michael is teaching meditation here at Native Yoga Center every Tuesday, Eastern uh, Daylight Time, uh, so here in Florida, East Coast. Uh, Tuesdays at 12 p.m. and Thursdays at 7.30. They are available in studio and also on the live stream. You can sign up by going to nativeyogacenter.com. I also want to make mention that Michael is donating his time, so it is free, and we are accepting donations, and the donations are going to Piper's Angels, which benefits the cystic fibrosis community. You can check that out at pipersangels.org. And I also want to announce that if you'd like to learn more about Michael, go to his website at shayheart.com. So www.shayheart, S-H-E-A, heart, H-E-A-R-T.com. That's the basics. I wanted to make sure we get that out of the way so we can get started. And today, the theme of our discussion is on yoga and meditation. And on that note, Michael, what I'd like to learn about from your experience and and from your history as like what were the first seeds that were planted that got you in or on this journey wow well i think uh meditation and yoga that's just takes me right back to when i get out of the military and what year are we talking so we're talking 1973 yep um I've got a 100% service-related disability, PTSD disability from my experience in the military. And so when I got out, um, as a result of that experience, I just made a U-turn in my future. I was supposed to be an attorney, and I got home a complete wreck. I was sleeping on the floor in my parents' living room and not knowing what to do. I shipped out as a merchant seaman and I needed money, I needed to pay off college loans. So the first uh, port of call, somebody said, uh, hey, ever hear of yoga? And here I am in Duluth, Minnesota, because I was not a, you know, a, a, a real big maritime sailor on the high seas. It was on the low seas, the Great Lakes, but it was a great time. So I've heard about yoga, and somebody actually, while I was a sailor, taught me sun salutation and i was hooked mm. just hooked right away i just thought some there's something to this yeah 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 it got me into my body because you know as a result of ptsd i was having a very difficult time 
relating to my body. So the minute I heard about yoga and then had my first experience with sun salutation, I was hooked. I was mm, there. Mm, nice. Now, that's the world of yoga in terms of the world of asana, in terms of the world of posturing your body and becoming aware of breath. What were the earliest seeds then that followed in terms of the world of meditation? Well, let's fast forward then two years. I spent two years on the Great Lakes. Um, I actually jumped ship uh, in South Chicago during the storm that the Edmund Fitzgerald sank in. So for those of you listening to this, um, and it was around 1974, 75, that the Edmund Fitzgerald sank. I was in that storm, and I went, this is crazy. I've got enough money. I'll pay off my college loans. And I went and stayed with my sister in New York City, and she was into meditation and yoga, and that's where I first heard about meditation. Nice. You know, what I've enjoyed, I've had a chance to sit here with you for the last couple weeks with the meditation, and I've noticed that when you have taught here before, there was a slight emphasis on the Tibetan Buddhist meditation and the Vajrayana. Right. And uh, can you enlighten me a bit about what your what journey you're on now in relationship with Zen or Zazen meditation? Well, I think it's important to um, continue with the storyline because um, okay, if we please. jump to the finish line. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure how much time you had. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, but uh, okay, please. Yes, thank you. I don't want to jump ahead. Let's, well, let's, you know, let's we have to think bit. historically, though. We yeah. have to think in terms of what it was like in the 1970s. Mm. Um, I not only got exposed to yoga and meditation in New York City, but I got exposed to some um, very sophisticated LSD and psychedelics because that was what was happening. Mm. Um, it was accepted within the counter uh, culture. Nobody on the street or in the grocery stores knew that anybody was tripping. Mm. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. there was no consciousness around it for the public. You could just go anywhere you wanted. Um, so I, I think that combination started me on a, on a, um, a journey. I tried transcendental meditation first, you know. With the Maharishi, that's TM. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, got my, I got my mantra, uh, my mm -hmm. special mantra, and I got mm -hmm. that initiation, and that lasted a month. Um, I was doing my mantra every day, and my mind was so active and so busy, I went, this is crazy. I can't, yeah. there's something not right here. So yeah. I gave up transcendental meditation almost immediately. Um, I then went and lived in a kundalini yoga ashram mm. and uh, became certified to teach kundalini yoga, but the meditations in that system were much too active and much too busy. Mm. So, Can you explain what that means when you say much too active, much too busy? Like, What do you mean by that? Well, in the kundalini yoga system, um, there's a lot of focus on kriya yoga, so there's a lot of movement mm. associated with yep. any posture that you're in. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of, a lot of intense breathing. So the pranayama became, um, a dynamic that I began to learn. But the first thing, the first pranayama I learned was breath of fire. Mm. So everything was kind of in a soup that yeah. wasn't sorted out. There wasn't a, a, 
a street map. You know, there was no map. It was yeah. all trial and error. Yeah. So yeah. I lasted about you know a year or two with Kundalini Yoga. Yeah, lasted two weeks with TM, and I uh-huh. kept. But I had, I had the what's it called? The intention, the drive. There's something yeah. here. I know there's something here, yeah. and it was my mind. I knew that something was going on, and I had to settle my mind. Yeah. So. Yeah. Nice. At what point? So that's I can see where then your ability to combine your yoga asana experience with a meditation experience that there you were already seeing the connection. It seems to me seeing the connection and living the connection because um, by then I had moved to Miami, gone to massage school, um, gotten my massage license. And that was when the first um, yoga studios started uh, blossoming in South Florida, in particular Miami. So Mm. the first yoga studio was in South Miami, Mm -hmm. 1975. And uh, the first yoga that I studied uh, was Swami Satchitananda's Mm. Integral Hatha Yoga. Completely fell in love with it. I did classes every day for about a year, sometimes twice a day, and then weekend workshops. Nice. Then the first... Iyengar Studio in about 1977 came to Miami, and of course we all boom right over, right, yeah, over right over. And uh-huh. my sister called it football yoga, so <laughs> we went over, we went over from the Swami's uh, yoga over to the football yoga. Why, why football yoga in relation to the way you guys moved from one to the other, like down the field, or what? what what's the football <laughs> ref? <What's> the, <laughs> like someone threw a ball and you ran for it, and they landed in session on his studio. <laughs> yeah. How, how did that help me out here? I think I think the reference that my sister was referring to was the rigor of the discipline mm. and the alignment, uh, the, the discipline uh, around the alignment. That was tough like football. Exactly. Is, you've got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. You really had, you know, you're, you're yeah. getting toughened up. So. Yeah. Because in Sachinananda, what more chill? More? A lot more chill, uh, a lot more flow um, between the asanas. Uh, a lot more pausing for the breath to enter into the stream of the body um, and integrate into the asana. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Now that makes me think, well, now you're doing body work. You're doing Iyengar yoga, some Satchinanda yoga, some Kundalini, some TM, and you're doing body work. Uh, where's your body work practice at this point? Are you doing the deep tissue Swedish spa style? Are you, you haven't started in the cranial sacral realm yet, I'm thinking. Oh, no. But what happened was this. So, again, we have to think um, retro. So, my license number in this state is number 3000. And everybody's license is numbered. And they're in the 80s or 90s right now. Yeah. 1976 okay 75 i think when i graduated 75 or 76 and there was no continuing education requirements Mm. or no continuing education availability so i learned i wasn't even classified as a massage therapist at that time i was considered a masseur Uh i learned swedish massage and i was a swedish style masseur Uh uh-huh no licensing in Florida at this time either, correct? The, oh, no. We had a licensing this, law this did, since 1943. We have the oldest oh, licensing law in, right. in, in, the, in the whole United States. Okay. Yeah, we have a very tight law in this state. Yeah. 
I, okay, good. Good to know. I didn't realize it was as early as 43. Yep. I, I was always heard a little bit of stories about people that were already doing massage and they got upset because then now you have to have a license and, and then they thought, well, I've already been doing it. And then they got grandfathered into having a license, but I didn't realize that goes back to 43. I thought this was more like a seventies thing, but I'm wrong. You, I know, you know, well, the no, history I, here. Yeah. Well, I think what, yeah. you're, what you're talking about, Todd, is what was happening is there were too few massage schools. So if, if I wanted to get a massage license, yeah. there were actually like a handful, maybe four school owners in the state at uh, that time. Uh-huh. And what they would do is they would just do weekend workshops and they would write a transcript for that amount of hours. Oh, I see. And you would, you would yeah. get it. Yeah. But I no, I went to Lindsay Hopkins because yeah. remember, it was a thousand hours you had to get credited for. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was yeah. that much as well. Yeah. I know New York is there now, but here in Florida, where I think it's 600. Currently, is that sound six hundred hours? Uh, I thought it was down to five, but so, it might okay, be six. Maybe you're right. So yeah. they pulled. They've just pulled it back. Pulled back it back, back in yeah. half. All right, in half. Um, cool. So you're doing some Swedish, <laughs> getting your getting your hands strong, right? Um, oh my god, and, yes. <clears throat> um, where's our next transition? Well, it was. It had to do with continuing education. So. I fell in love with my yoga instructor that was the substitute yoga instructor in mm. uh, Swami's uh, Satchitana, in the inner real Hatha Yoga. Mm. And uh, she and I got together. She wanted to go and attend Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado and mm. take the Buddhist psychology program. Mm-hmm. I had been accepted into the Rolf Institute training in Boulder, so we moved out there together. Awesome. And what happened was she started the uh, Naropa program, and every night she'd come home and say, you wouldn't believe what I learned today. Uh-huh. And I, I learned this meditation, and she said, it's for free. Do you want to learn how to do it? Uh-huh. And I said, yeah, sure. So that weekend, I went up to the, it was called the Rocky Mountain Dharma Center at the time, outside of Fort Collins. Nice. And it was just, it was free instruction, so... I went into the shrine room and I got instruction for like five minutes, maybe six minutes. I sat down and I was home. Yeah. I was home. That's the only way I can describe it. I sat there, I did the technique, and it was the first time in my life I felt at home in my body and in my mind as an integrated unit of wholeness. That's interesting because that brings up a thought that sometimes we'll hear in the whole, well, in every world, but yoga world, meditation world that, you know, you got to give true trial for the technique, you know, because if I'm just kind of here nor there, I try a technique for three days and I go, well, it doesn't work for me. Let me jump over here that that we're kind of encouraged to settle in on one tradition and give it like a good five, 10, 15 years trial and then make up our mind once we've had enough time to integrate it. But I think it's important what you mentioned because sometimes people do come into a specific style of yoga and or meditation and they don't feel at home. Now, that's an interesting issue because they could be battling some inner turmoil that that style is just putting a mirror in front that might pop up in any style they go to. So I know there's that too, but it's good to hear that you are saying that by just trusting your intuition, trying a couple different things, that at some point you did find a place that felt like, okay, this is what I want to focus on. Would you agree with that? Or Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I, I think the key to life is trial and error right now. Yeah. And the key to life as you know, we know the maxim is the uh, plan B. So yeah. uh, I've tried many styles of meditation. Uh, of course, you know, I was here and, and did the yoga certification. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's also developmental. I mean, the yoga that I did in my 20s is what I needed in my 20s. And yeah. Yeah. and then I let it go during my 30s and 40s altogether. Yeah. I mean, I stopped yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just yeah. meditating, uh-huh. but then I gradually came back to it here mm-hmm. in Florida and mm-hmm. in your studio mm-hmm. um, with a completely different style, with yeah. the Ashtanga style. Yeah. To your credit, I when you started practicing here, um, you didn't tell me all this history, and therefore you came in with an open, like, I'm a student, and I'm happy to be a student, so I'm going to do whatever you guys say to do. <laughs> And that's pretty amazing, really, to hear all this other backstory. Because now I'm like going, oh, geez, he had all these experiences. And <laughs> he's being quite <laughs> humble. Um, I, I, that does make me think, though, uh, in the world of rolfing. So when you were in Colorado, was Ida Rolf uh, alive then and teaching? You know, it's interesting you say that because I applied to the Rolf Institute in March of 79. And that's the month and year she died. Wow. So I'm considered to be a second generation gotcha. rolfer, but I, I left the Rolf Institute maybe 15, 20 years ago, and yeah. I only have yep. limited contact with a few friends that remain, yeah. and I don't follow the Rolf Institute yeah. or, or yeah. that style of yeah. work anymore. Yeah. She's, been, she's legendary, so that's why I wanted to mention um, that you have that close contact. That's cool. And then I'm curious, at the time that you went to that free meditation in Fort Collins, was that associated with Chongyong Trumpa f- from the Naropa Institute and his lineage, or was it a side lineage? What What was the connection between that first meditation experience and your then, because uh, you have filled me in on a little bit of these details, that you then did right. study with Chongyong Trumpa? Chogyam Trumpa. Chogyam Trumpa. Chogyam Trumpa. Sorry. So, sorry, I was mispronouncing right. it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think... Um, you know, this is, again, developmental. So I arrive in Boulder, you know, wanting to continue my bodywork career. And the whole town was inhabited by Buddhists, uh, basically. That was the primary uh, spiritual path for most everybody. And it was um, all these followers of, of Chögyam Trumpa Rinpoche. He started Naropa Institute. Um, they had a, a fairly big institution. Um, and... It was a Tibetan Buddhist um, practice and within a specific lineage called the Kagyu lineage or what is known as the practice lineage. These people know meditation backwards and forwards, you know, and it's that whole legendary stuff you hear about the cave and being in the cave for years and staring at the the walls of the cave and meditating. These people were doing that kind of stuff, you know, the standard retreat in Kagyu tradition now is a three-year, three-month, three-week retreat. Wow. I mean, three years in a monastery. And unless you're doing the basic, it's called shamatha vipassana. That's the basic practice. Um, and I taught that here. Yes. Because I did that for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Um, it's it's an amazing process. And it's, it's, the, it's translated as, um, you know, the process and peacefulness of mind, tranquility of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, to develop a sense of tranquility of mind. Nice. So, where was the next turn then? Sounds like you went to Naropa. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, um, and at some point, I know that 
you became a student of doc, Dr. Upledger. And what am I missing in between here in terms of your practice and the lineage of, like you said, of the Tibetan Buddhism? After Colorado, what happened? Well, um, let's stay in Colorado for a okay. while because I was in my 30s and I was having a lot of fun. This is so. where the most exciting part is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, I was having a lot of fun because, you know, I've got a career track. I love body work. So I've got the career track, but then the spiritual track. Um, and they, they weren't quite merging yet. Okay. So it's like this functional schizophrenia. You know, I've mm. got my career and mm. I've got loads of clients and I'm mm. doing all that. And I'm overworking and I had an office in New Orleans and I had an office in North Dakota and I was traveling around the country working way too much. And in 1983, um, I got a pinched nerve in my neck and blew a disc. Mm. And it happened overnight, and literally, I lost my career overnight. Mm. I could not lift my left arm. Mm. I had to cancel everything. And long story short, um, that was a very necessary part of my life to learn about how to take care of myself, how to learn self-compassion, and interestingly enough, to shift my career focus to a spiritual practice, to a spiritual focus. Mm. So I went to Naropa um, and borrowed all the money to go to Naropa uh, in order to shift into becoming a Buddhist psychotherapist. Mm. And when I got out of Naropa, um, unfortunately, they were only paying Buddhist psychotherapists $13 an hour. And Dr. Upledger had come through town, and I had been asked to... Um, be his escort around town and to take care of him during his presentation at mm -hmm. the Rolf Institute. Uh -huh. And he and I struck up this conversation and he invited me down here to become his first uh, teacher cohort gotcha. in 1986. Nice. Nice. That's pretty amazing. I mean, he's got a he, international uh, following, right? Craniosacral therapy in the osteopath world and the massage world is it's an international. So were you um, starstruck at that point and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this opportunity. Were you really grounded at that point and just thinking, well, I'll take it as it comes and let's see if it'll work. What, where, what was the feeling at that point? Was there even that awe? I know that, you know, with all these people that we've mentioned so far, right. a lot of them, you know, in terms of, in these communities that there's this pedestal part and then there's like the, just the down to earth human part. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I would like to hear your thoughts on your journey with that over the years with all these different people in this, this world of yoga and meditation. I, I get the feeling that you're really grounded now. I don't see students coming up to you wanting to touch your feet, nor are you encouraging <laughs> them to do that. <laughs> And if someone does get a little bit like, oh, Michael, Michael, you're, you know, you're pretty like you cut it, you cut it off pretty quick. So I'm thinking that you've seen some stuff. What, what are your thoughts on the guru disciple relationship? I know, I think we're still on the same topic, but I can't help but ask you this question. Well, I could ask you the same question because mm -hmm. I, I think we've had some mutual experiences and, and I, I hate to say it this way, but I think the, the guru-disciple relationship is abusive, fundamentally abusive. Um, and that's been my experience un until I took my vows with the Dalai Lama. 
So I have not experienced that level. But in the Boulder community, I experienced emotional abuse. At the Naropa Institute, I experienced emotional abuse. Um, and I'm having to, you know, work through that. Um, and I think based on that, there's two types of meditation practice um, in, in, in Buddhism, and one is the wisdom meditation. So that's what I've been teaching here is the wisdom meditation, whether it's Zazen or Shamatha. They, their roots are the same. But there's the compassion meditation is what really interested me as well in the Naropa community, in the, in the Buddhist community in Boulder. So I went and received my uh, refuge vows, and then I also received uh, bodhisattva vows in, I think it was like 82 or 83, specifically because at that time, when you receive the bodhisattva vow, you receive transmission for Tonglen practice, which is the main uh, practice for compassion meditation in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And at that time, it was given by Pema Chodron. So I had personal empowerment from Pema Chodron um, regarding Tonglen meditation. And if you've read any of her books, that's like a major She's awesome. focus uh, yeah. in all yes. of her work, in all yep. of her books. So, And long story short, 1986, I graduate from Naropa and my father dies. Mm. And my mother's ill, so I moved back to Florida. Yeah. Uh, I was the only one in the family could do that. I, I kind of saw it coming. And I was perfectly okay with that. I was a Buddhist. I yes. was compassionate. Yes. And I loved my mother. So yes. I came home. And it was a 10-year journey with her um, mm. before mm. she passed in 2004. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, that makes me think back to, you mentioned 1973, getting out of the military. Now we're a fair few years down the track. You did make mention that your initial sort of mind-opening experiences being inspired through maybe LSD and or the, op the op opportunity to use hallucinogens. How did that shift evolve, change through to this time period that we're speaking of where you came back to Florida? Had you st Were you still using that to aid your meditation? Is that something that you think does help meditation? And another question that definitely pops into my head is that if you're recovering from PTSD, is it dangerous to have your mind exp uh, expanded like that if you have some of that unresolved sensation, emotion, bodies, feelings, mind, and or do you think it helps you heal that? What are, what are your thoughts on all that? Because I know it's a really popular topic these days in terms of should you use hallucinogens to help your meditation grow? Is it a hindrance to it? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you think here? Um, I think, um, it has no relationship, uh, for me. I would not recommend uh, to anybody listening this, that you link, um, hallucinogens or psychedelic or psychotropic drugs to your meditation practice. Um, it just doesn't work. Um, however, my usage in retrospect, because uh, I've written about it, um, regarding PTSD was specifically, it really helped me with the PTSD. It really helped calm my mind and calm my body uh, in a rather dramatic way because there were not a lot of skills 
available. Again, historically, yeah. PTSD was not on the map until 20 years after I got out of the military. Gotcha. I wallowed around yeah. symptomatic yeah. Uh, until somebody noticed I was symptomatic Interesting. Um, in like 20 years after I got out of the military. Uh, interesting. Can you share what symptoms are? Like, help me understand, like, when you say symptoms, like, what, what was something that you were experiencing? Well, symptomatically, um, I have re- right now, I mean, let's just get into right now. I mean, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have regular nightmares, mm. um, you know, nightmares of bombs exploding and things like that, and then waking up in a yeah. sweat. Um, yeah. So that that is is an ongoing dynamic. I'm, uh, I'm kind of used to that. Um, yeah. Uh, not that it's okay, but I'm just used to that. I know what it is. So I wake yeah. up and then I, I have different techniques that I use. Um, they're not meditation techniques, but they're uh, resilience techniques to calm my autonomic nervous system, breathing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, pranayama, yeah. we could get often to that, but pranayama now is, is a really big deal yeah. in terms of calming myself. Yeah. So I'm also prone to anxiety. Um, so, and the anxiety can come up really, really quickly, um, depending on what the trigger is. Yeah. And, and then I have to, I have to separate a little bit from the, from the situation I'm in, in order to calm myself down and then reinsert myself in, Mm. in a social situation. Mm. And then the main uh, symptom though is dissociation. Mm. And my learning around dissociation over the years, um, is that it's, it's the feeling of fear, um, because mm. of my experience in the military, mm. the, the main side effect was, was fear and, and then everything that goes along with fear, yeah. um, Interesting. I, you know, the shame, um, survivor's guilt, you know, all that kind of stuff regarding yeah. the experience I was in. So the good news is, you know, whether it's, I don't use psychedelics anymore. It's just like, cause it's such a major commitment, <laughs> but I did in my twenties yeah. and thirties, it was like yeah. very popular, yeah. Yeah. but I had a lot more time and yeah. Yeah. I wasn't so invested in my career and I, yeah. I didn't have a happy marriage like I have now. Yeah. I've been divorced twice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's interesting. In the process of, your your dad and then your mom passing um how are you using i feel like i, I keep wanting to jump forward because that makes me think that of what you're involved in now with becoming a well, chaplain we're, we're close okay we're close. <laughs> so let's let's make the <laughs> jump because <laughs> i remember recently you said to me that with the program with the Upaya Institute who you're working with closely now that, and part of the purpose of doing the free meditation is a chance for you to offer something to the community and have experience and practice in this, this particular style of teaching, which again, I find um, inspirational because you've been in this field for so long. I was born in 73. So like I was just born at the time you were already off and running and getting started here um and you still approach it like you're a brand new student in the sense that you really want to give so for me that's very inspirational because i think whenever i have the opportunity to be a student there's nothing like it i mean it's the greatest thing so Mm. i can understand why you like to do it yeah it feels good to just be like i know nothing teach me i'm a i'm a i'm a blank slate let's start over again yeah 
I know that's probably next to impossible when you have this many years of experience, but I don't know. I feel like you're doing a good job of navigating that. Um, and when you mentioned that you would like to help people in the process of passing as a Buddhist chaplain, maybe someone could call you to their, maybe in a situation of hospice care and or in a hospital and right. or um, <clears throat> how is the process of uh, integrating your uh, processing of your parents passing and you helping people now moving forward and your meditation practice? How does that all coalesce? Wow. Well, again, I think it's just, uh, you know, jumping into the stream, as they say, and I just kept following the stream. Um, fortunately, I had a couple of good paddles and a decent kayak, but <laughs> or a paddleboard. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, with that, I, I you know, my intention um, is always the compassionate intention, because that's what drove me towards Buddhism, not so much the, actually the meditation. The meditation itself was... Um, was like a just a wonderful side effect, but I had to I had to learn the meditation and calm my mind before I could get to the to the peace on compassion, and consequently, you know, in my career, which is a lot of traveling, which is a lot of teaching of cranial work and in involving the cranial work, um, I met the Dalai Lama. Uh, didn't meet him personally, but he came to Miami um, the year my mother died in mm. two thousand and four. Mm. And I was a wreck after my mother died. I'm, I was classic Irish. I was drinking a lot. It was driving my wife crazy. She said, you need help. I said, I know I need help. A friend called and said, look, the Dalai Lama's coming. You know, we got to go down and, and hear his talk at Miami. I went down with my friend and we're sitting there and he usually speaks in these basketball arenas. So we're, we're on the campus of the university of Miami in their basketball stadium where it's like a five or 10,000 seat stadium. And I've got, I'm in the, I'm in the nickel seats. I'm in the, the nosebleed seats all the way in the back. You can barely see him, but he's on a jumbotron and I'm sitting there and, and all of a sudden I receive a mind transmission from him. So I think the, the listener needs to know that in Tibetan Buddhism or Buddhism in general, when you take on a teacher, there's several ways in which you receive transmission or you know in which the, the teacher is your teacher. And mind transmission is one of them. And I'm sitting there um, partially hungover because I was drinking every night, you know, two or three <laughs> beers and a couple of shots, whatever I was into at the time. And all of a sudden, I hear his voice. And it's literally that, and it's not hearing the ear, but he's inside my mind. That's a city um, that mm. you have when mm. you, you know, develop yourself and your chakras mm. that way. Mm. He enters my mind stream and... I want to cry. Um, it is the most gentle conversation. Mm. He just says, hi, you know, how are you doing? I'm here for you. Interesting. Um, so it was very moving in that way. And um, so, and I, I just said, well, hi, how are you? And, you know, I've done enough acid, I suppose. To, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're open to this idea. Yeah, yeah, that I could treat strangeness yeah. with respect, you know. So at any rate. <laughs> 
And I went home that night and I told my friend, I said, something strange happened. And she said, well, let's see if it happens again tomorrow for you. And it happened again. Mm. And he said to me the next day in the mind transmission, he said, um, I want you to take the opportunity that when you can, you come to my teachings. Mm. Um, it'll be important for you and your, and your spiritual growth. And I got home after that and I immediately called the sponsors in Miami, the, the, the Tibetan Buddhist community. And I said, I need to speak to somebody in his group. I, if it's Dharamsal in India, I need to speak now. Yeah. And they were very kind. And I spoke to somebody and I said, this is what happened. And they said, oh yes, you've received mind transmission from him. Uh-huh. How wonderful. Uh, interesting. So a friend of mine uh, invited me um, next year. She had tickets, and she just called me out of the clear blue, and she said, he's giving his empowerment to become a, a, a baseline student of his in Zurich, Switzerland. I have tickets. You want to come? I've got oh, a yeah. spare ticket. Yeah. So I did the, it's called the Chen Rezi ceremony, in which you are bound to him as a student. Not high level, but you're just bound to him not only as a spiritual friend, um, but as, as a, a committed student. And so, um, our job at the end of that was to, uh, as a student of his to do Buddhist scholarship. So I got connected with the largest, um, Buddhist scholarship organization on the planet right now. It's called BurzenArchives.com. And I started editing high level Buddhist scriptures and lectures for about five to 10 years. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Cause some of the books you encouraged me to read were pretty hard to read. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then I was like, you read this one and you read this one too. And you're like, Oh yeah, I read that. And here's the next one. And I was just like, Whoa. So that makes sense. Well, right. again, um, in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the Kagyu lineage of Chogyam Trumpa. So there's, you know, there's five or six different lineages of Buddhism in Tibet. And the Kagyu lineage is where I started, the practice lineage. The Dalai Lama's lineage is, is the Galupka lineage or the Galug uh, lineage. And they're kind of the intellectual lineage. They're the scholarly lineage, although they still promote meditation. The Dalai Lama is considered to have the equivalent of five PhDs. This guy has written over 100 books. He's a really smart guy. Um, so long story short, in 2011, he comes to Washington, D.C. I've been to several other of his programs in the United States. And then in 2011 is when I, I, I received tantric initiation for the, the final formal um, empowerment of him being my so-called guru or teacher. And it was at the Kala Chakra Empowerment in 2011 in Washington, D.C. And basically at that point, um, he said, uh, really, my path is simple. You stay in your heart. This is a path of happiness and understanding um, the causes of happiness and why people are so unhappy. Mm. Uh, and he said, as a student of mine, um, all of my students are encouraged to start centers for the study of the human heart. And so if you can move in that direction, that would be great. I came home and I rebuilt my whole um, uh, mm. website, mm. Um, Shea Hart. I became SheaHart.com. Ah. If you go to Shea Hart, you see it's the um, center for the study of the human heart. I switched my entire career focus of biodynamic craniosacral therapy into 
the application of those principles to the cardiovascular system and to the heart. I um, developed a whole series of um, meditations on the heart and the vascular system uh, that I still teach um, as, as part of the work I do. Of which I can attest to having taken your courses oh, yeah, here on those classes um, yeah. were really profound. I mean, it's, it's um, I think you're on the forefront. It's amazing. Well, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun because um, I'm following my heart, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting yeah. to yeah. live and yeah. embody compassion. Yeah. Yeah. And the traveling thing got to be, is, is getting to be a little bit of a drag. I was going to Europe three times a year, um, flying, you know, steerage in the back. Uh, and it's a very difficult transition over there and back. And it got, as I aged in my 60s, it was like, oh my goodness, I wonder if... And I birthed the idea of becoming a chaplain. If I'm going to stay locally in Palm Beach County, which my wife and I really uh, would like to do because she started traveling with me, why not become a chaplain? Because number one, I want to continue my own spiritual formation. You know, it's never done uh, no matter what age, no matter what development. And so I birthed the idea of, of like, I want to be a chaplain, but that was five years ago. And COVID, oh my goodness, what a blessing it's been. It's been a complete blessing. I got to stop traveling mm. just like that. And my wife and I had already been talking about it for two years. We have to plan for when we stop. So we would talk about it. Well, when we stop, we'll do this. I'll, I'll go to chaplain school. Well, guess what? It all stopped last year. <laughs> yeah. And they accepted me immediately yeah. Um, yeah. into the program. But it meant switching from Tibetan Buddhism mm. to Chinese Japanese Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the present moment. Yeah. And that's a couple of questions that started um, cropping up as you were going through this is in your first response to the guru disciple relationship, you made mention that you had seen a lot of different power, power plays in different organizations that you didn't enjoy. However, when you were working with the Dalai Lama, that you didn't experience that. And that's an interesting element because um, you had made men you had said that the when you first made mention that when you accepted being a student, that he said, like, look, you're now, you know, you're beholden to me. And that for me right away brings up that trigger of like, oh, here we go, the classic guru disciple thing. You're now like, how do you feel that he has somehow managed to keep that tradition in place without abusing the power that comes out of it. Or at least that's what it seems like to me, like you've said has happened for you. And, and we don't know what other people's experiences yeah, are, but I can only share, you know, my yeah, own personal experience. Yeah. And he never said in any of the mind transmissions or any of his talks, I've been to many, many of his talks and listened to many of his talks and never, never as he said, you're beholden to me. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so maybe I misinterpreted. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> that's my own trigger is that like i own you now <laughs> no. uh no you know well then in relationship to me you're making your decision to i mean meditation is meditation and buddha is buddha and then if you look at it from tibet china japan there are a lot of differences but then it's very similar 
how hard of a decision is it or was it for you to make this sort of leap from one continent to the next, so to speak, in in this world of Buddha Buddha meditation? Um, it really wasn't that hard of a leap for me because, <laughs> right. you know, having um, been trained as a Buddhist scholar and, and being a meditator and teaching meditation, I basically wanted to learn. Yeah. Uh, I wanted yeah. to learn more. And you've got to remember a couple of things that I didn't realize at the time, but Buddhism made it to China 400 years before it made it to Tibet. So the the system I'm learning now and that I'm teaching it has a degree of sophistication. Not It's not better than or less than. It's just different, but all the roots go to the same thing. And Todd, Buddhism is just about you becoming you. Uh, you know, and that's all the practices, all the meditations. It's about you becoming you. If you're, if you have a teacher, the teacher's only job is to point out you, <laughs> and but where you are blocked that you can't see. So, and I get those messages all the time from life. I don't need it from from the Dalai Lama. I get it all the time from my wife. You know, <laughs> so we have a we have this loving relationship, and we sit down and we've done a lot of therapy together. And yeah, you know, yeah. and Todd, I'm sure you've yeah. heard this, honey. We need to talk. Yeah, that, that's the yeah. famous line. Was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm I'm, gonna, mm-hmm. I'm about to get a download yeah. about a behavior yeah. or yeah. something, and then and then how to become non reactive yeah. and how to become transparent when. It's just about loving kindness, really, when you get down to it. Yeah. And it's about a non-reactive mind. So if we come back to meditation, it's about the meditation of creating some tranquility and getting a little leverage with the stickiness of the thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I have a favorite. I brought it with me. I got to read it. So Please. Now is a good time to read All it right. because we, we both know Krishna Das, okay? Oh, yeah. Uh, I love yes. Krishna Das. And, he's so great. Uh, he's fabulous. And I, I listen to some of his satsang every now and then because I guess he's got a regular one now. Yeah. And I was listening to one a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you can't think yourself out of a prison that is made of thought when every thought is the prison already that is why we meditate to get out of prison yeah that's a great that's a great little um that's perfect yeah yeah you shared with me yesterday a website that had some zen wisdom in it (laughs) and it was and, and you had made mention that it had a lighthearted nature to it, which sometimes in the Zen world is is a welcome quality. Because I think, I don't know how much you guys listening or you listening know about or have heard about Zen, but one of the first impressions that was made upon me was people sitting extremely still. And if you started to nod a little bit, someone would come either from behind or somewhere with a stick and give you a little whack, you know, and sit up wake up and um you know like a a strictness to it which when i read the information that you shared i this guy was funny yeah he just had such a funny way of bringing up this concept that stop thinking you're so special 
And I, and I, I love that, like something about that, like, and, you, and you've been making mention of that in the last couple of sessions of like, um, you know, the, what, what do you, what, where are you at with this whole, like, stop taking myself so seriously and letting go of the thinking everything I do is so special. <laughs> the reason we do that and we, the reason we think we're so special, whether you want to call it ego or not, is that we're always comparing ourselves to somebody else. We're always, you know, trying to one up or uh, one over, you know, the the other guy, you know, mm. the other studio or the other whatever. Yep. So we're always in this comparison uh, to another person and so, or another group, you know, I, in that same thing, he talks about getting out of the group stupidity and becoming who we are, becoming more of a genuine mm. human being, mm. a genuine human being with a kind heart that also is not beholden to the group consciousness mm. that, that has a degree of ignorance to it sometimes. I think we can see that in our culture right now. <laughs> um, I, I'm just going to not call out anybody, but we, we, we see uh, this level of, in Buddhism, it's called ignorance. And in that, that particular uh, Zen master, he called it group stupidity. So yeah. we, we want to, become ourselves, you know, and we want to become, uh, you know, open-hearted, but mm. that requires an open-heartedness to ourself mm. and our own neurosis. Mm. And, and all Buddhism says that um, all dharmas, all Buddhist dharma agrees on one point, kill the neurosis. Mm. So we, we've got to reduce the thinking. We've got to re reduce the negative thinking that, that keeps us um, locked in this group stupidity or this, this, this ignorance. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow. I'm not sure where to go from here. <laughs> Todd, I feel like you took me on a really nice journey and I'm, <laughs> we are in the present here now. So, uh, where, where would you like to go? <laughs> well, let's, uh, you yeah. know, the thing is you've hosted me here, um, teaching Shamatha Vipassana. So, mm. um, I had gotten certified, um, as a Shambhala guide, which is their step to becoming a meditation instructor in the Shambhala Training International. And then their leader got outed as this egregious sexual abuser and alcoholic mm. and so forth. And so I, I, seven days after I got my certification, I quit. And I went, you know, I'm going to ask Todd if I can start teaching Shambhata Vipassana. Yeah. And, and you were very gracious with me, and I want to thank you again over and over again. Oh, please. And so I, I taught those few classes here on Shamatha Vipassana, and now I've switched into Zazen. And yeah. I just, I think it's important for the listener to know the difference. You know, Please, all yeah. the meditation, you know, derives from the Buddha. So I have received this certification um, that has gone step by step from the Buddha. Um, I am not the Buddha, but I have received this, this certification. Uh, we're told in Buddhism that I have Buddha nature, um, but we need to do some meditation in order to, to wake that up. In the shamatha style, shamatha vipassana, shamatha meaning tranquility and vipassana meaning special insight, it is described as having nine stages. So, and interestingly enough, those nine stages are based on the, the amount of time that you can go without thinking a thought until you get to the last stage 
which they actually say could be four hours or more. I cannot imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine not thinking a thought for four hours, not even when I'm sleeping and dreaming yeah. do I get a four-hour yeah. break. So, yeah. however, in Zazen, they reverse the equation. They mm. start you at stage nine. Mm. And they just say... They reverse it. They just reverse it. They just say... Zazen is the self-enjoyment practice of a Buddha. You sit there. Um, you can think your thoughts, but they have to be done within a context or recognized within a context of no thought, which is the background. And so the, the style I've been teaching here has six points to it, and I think you were here the other day. The yes. fifth point is called shikantaza, uh, and that's the Japanese word for open awareness. So you go through the posture and you go through uh, creating a compassionate intention and then the breathing, you know, uh, number three. And then number four, you've got to find a relationship with your mind. And so that's where you apply mindfulness, the innate quality of recognizing that you have just been taken for a ride by your mind and you've got to come back to something, to your posture and your breath, okay? So you get, it's kind of like, I, I call it a tennis match. You're just playing tennis back and forth. Your mind, your breath, your mind, your breath. Usually the mind wins, okay? Usually the mind wins. But there's a certain point in Zazen where all of a sudden the tennis match is the tennis match, but everything else is suspended equally. And you're in a state of open awareness, and it's called non-referential awareness. Um, our teacher at Upaya, uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, incredible woman, she um, calls it choiceless awareness, where your mind is not asking you to make a choice about what object to have your senses be concentrating on. So posture, breath, mind, those are all objects. But there's a point at which you then are kind of like automatically in that. I don't know if that's the right word, but you're in it. And all of a sudden, you're in this open awareness. Now, let me give the listener a little bit of a cue here. Um, and I want to share this with you because I was thinking about it. Our sense of hearing is the only sense that we have that never turns off. Even when we're sleeping... It doesn't take much for our hearing to all of a sudden get something that's going on in the periphery and all of a sudden we wake up because we heard something. There is a faculty of our hearing sensation called auto-acoustic emission. And I love that part in your studio here. And when we get into the second 25-minute part, and that's when I do the, the fifth segment because usually after 25 minutes, of practice and then 10 minutes of walking, maybe then the tennis match has settled down a little bit and we can get into this, this level of choiceless awareness. And what happens for me, everything becomes suspended and all I hear is the sacred sound of my own sensory organ not having an object, not hearing the AC, but hearing itself, okay? Choiceless awareness of hearing itself without an object, and it's built in. 
That's why in Tibet, Milarepa, the, the, one of the most famous Tibetan yogis, the iconography of Milarepa is his hand in cupping in back of his ear. Uh, okay? Yeah. Now, the teaching says that's because when you're a Buddhist, you're supposed to listen to the teachings. Mm. But that's the secret teaching of autoacoustic emission, mm. of you, the sensation of hearing without hearing. Okay? And this is then gives you a special insight into the nature of reality. Um, and we should stop right there because we maybe the next podcast we'll talk about, <laughs> we'll talk about enlightenment. No, I know. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like going hearing without hearing. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. That sounds cool. No, if you sit I get there, it. yeah. yeah you, and, and you made mention too, like, okay, you, you can probably hear the hum of the air conditioning right. system or you can. And um, that makes me think when I, the first like formal meditation training I took was with the SRF Self-Realization Fellowship with Paramahansa Yogananda and they send you these lessons and there were the instruction was to close off the ears with your thumbs and maybe get like a little prop to put your elbows on so your arms don't get tired and you listen for the cosmic sound ohm, you know, in your auditory system. But it's interesting that, that that's the first reference point in relation to what you're mentioning too, that like tuning into the hearing as a way to, to, to get into that present space, like you're saying of open awareness. All the, all the early in the legend of the Buddha uh, who taught for almost 50 years, um, they, they say that each of his followers became enlightened through um, the different senses so that one of the followers became enlightened through the sense of hearing, one mm-hmm. became enlightened through the sense of, of mm-hmm. the eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's why I tend to, in the meditation, if you've noticed, I tend to go to that phase of open awareness of like, okay, let's shift into a broader space. and Because you, you can hear the hum of the AC. But yeah. at that point, you can also hear your hearing sense without yeah. the object. That's the point. Uh. Hear with your hearing sense without the object. And it makes perfect sense, Todd, that you would learn that meditation of closing off the external sounds by by putting uh, your thumb in your ear or an earplug because you would immediately hear, some people might think it's tinnitus, but it's not tinnitus. You're hearing the sound. And from there, if you concentrate on that, that can become the sacred mm. sound. Mm. That is the initiation of the yeah. sacred sound. Yeah. Nice. At the origin of the universe. Yeah. Okay. Right, right. All the elements in the East, whether it's Tibet or, or in Taoism and China, all, all the elements, the, the basic elements transmit the sacred sound. That's why they're there. So mm. the sound piece is, is critically important. Yeah. Listening. Yeah. Listening without listening. Listening without listening. <laughs> While we're meditating, but it, you and I are sitting here talking to one another, and we better be listening to what <laughs> yeah. each other is saying. So, yeah. Oh man, that is so great. It's just great stuff, Michael. I was curious, Todd. I mean, I was when when I studied Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Um, you know, what have you learned regarding the? the most fundamental relationship that, that arose out of Hinduism, out of this tradition of Hatha yoga, you know, cause the, the meditation, the yoga, all of that came from your tradition, not mine. 
Ooh, good question. <laughs> <laughs> Next podcast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I've only, you know, what's kind of cool is that there's all these different, say, religious sort of spheres of Buddhism or Buddha, Hinduism, uh, Sikh, Sikhism, or the yeah. Sikhs, uh, and then on and on and on. And yoga, like, stands apart, but then also is shaped by each tradition. But yoga kind of seems to maybe be able to stand on its own, but is not a religion. So it's like a technology. Mm -hmm. And then the technology was taken up by the Hindus, or the technology is taken up by the Buddhist. Uh, and, okay. the, and this is the way I see it. And yeah. then the... And that whatever, in my opinion, I know people disagree with me on this, but in my opinion, no matter what your religious affiliation is, whether you have one or not, you can take yoga and have it help you continue your, whatever your own personal practice is. So it kind of stands apart, but yet will only help make whatever it is that you're interested in or, or connected to stronger or... Right. And so then in terms of the realm of like Patanjali yoga, I don't see Patanjali yoga as a Hindu. I mean, there's a very good chance that Patanjali, if he was a historical individual and or sometimes we hear that it was a group of individuals that compiled uh, the information. Definitely Patanjali was after Buddha. And it seems really obvious to me that Patanjali was pretty much taking from the Buddhist teachings and then scripting it a little differently. Yeah seems that in terms of the eight limb path and the eightfold noble path and the similarity with the morality and then the techniques are all a little different but mm -hmm. so <clears throat> if i try to steer it back to what i think your question was which what i heard was well i don't know where am i going right now i think uh <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I guess the moral of the story is that you can take the tools of yoga and put it into Buddhism and we can see that this is the case. Another yeah. interesting element too, when we look at, you know, the Theravada Buddhism and maybe its origination and or its, its holding down of the culture in Southeast right. Asia, like Thailand and Vietnam and Myanmar and um, Laos and Cambodia. <clears throat> and then we see the, how as it moved over to China or originally was in China before it moved over there and how each like uh, local tradition and right. culture then took their own culture and kind of helped to kind of put them together. And the uniqueness of all these different tradition, traditions yeah. seems to have that initial seed of what that original uh, philosophy was about what we're doing here yeah. and what's the purpose of our existence. Yeah. Um, so what I've enjoyed about your presenting of the Zazen tradition in, in juxtaposition and or in, some, in relationship to the Shamatha Vipassana and, and then having had the opportunity to go sit Vipassana with the Gwenka tradition, which right. sometimes gets dubbed as the Theravada tradition from right. the Southeast Asia. I, mean, I just see all this. I see the similarities, but I love like what you said where it's been flipped. And that's what's really cool about being open-minded 
to being willing to move from one way to the other and say, holy cow, that's cool. Well, I spent this whole time trying to get to here, feeling like I never was able to sit for four hours without having a single thought come through my mind. But now <laughs> I'm being told I'm already there. And so I can just enjoy it and just enjoy thinking yeah. within the element of what you said right. of like, you know, you're not taking it seriously. You're just watching it like a, a play or a movie. Yeah. So I'm fascinated. And I guess my overall, in just the, I've only gotten a chance to sit with the last two weeks on the Tuesday, but it's been great. I've noticed just that those two sessions have helped me to just kind of, uh, we're, we're afterward. Now, I don't want to get caught in the trap because in the information that you had me read, it was like when people <laughs> say like, you know, wow, the meditation helps me. And in this case, this one teacher that from that website, I, I can put the notes, I'll put the name of the website in the notes so people can check it out. It's kind of like the meditation doesn't do anything to you, so to speak. It's not like it changes you. It's not like you're better because of it. It's not like a, a badge that you wear or I've passed this test now all of a sudden and just the realness of it, like the rawness of mm. it, the acceptance of the fact of just stop thinking everything or ever, everybody else is so special. It's It's just a fascinating journey. So I'm thankful for you kind of keeping me interested give me some <laughs> some food to like some fodder because it's easy to just you know yeah get comfortable and and or forget how how important it is to keep practicing and yeah. be inspired and be yeah be uh get the fire get the fire lit again you know on that note everybody if you're listening to this before august of 2021 you can tune in i'm going to put the live streams up so that you can sign up and the great thing again for when you mentioned you may mention about how great covid gave you this opportunity to like restructure your whole focus and shift it in a direction that you've been wanting to go and didn't know if you could and similarly i was always a little fearful of like how could i project down into the wider sphere of the yeah. internet because I just thought I'm a local person with people coming in. Now that we have that available, wherever you are listening to this, you can join in for a session. You can watch Michael. I had someone tune in the other day and I helped them because you know the, the technology piece is difficult for people yeah. because they've, they've never done it. They're like, I could never do it. So I'm trying to help people figure out how you just click the button and watch the Zoom. So I think when they came in, you were sitting there meditating. She's like, I can't hear him. And I was writing her on the phone like, you know, saying, well, I don't think he's saying anything. <laughs> he's just meditating. Like, there's nothing to hear. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's just that one piece of like, if you do tune in and you just see Michael sitting there, <laughs> just wait a little longer. He will talk. Like he will. He will give you some, or turn your volume up. Right. Right. <laughs> or just imitate or, him. Or just, just imitate him. Oh, the monkey. The monkey's imitating the Buddhist sitting. Right. That was great. Yeah. On that note, let me just read that. Is that okay? Sure. I don't think. I hope we are, this is from a website called antaiji.org. So A N T A I J I.org. And oh, wow, I'm going to have to, I should have been more prepared. So maybe Michael, talk for a little bit while I <laughs> <laughs> entertain these guys while I look for the correct one. All right, you look for that. My, you know, my sense um, in my practice of yoga is that yoga was the first way, and I'm talking about Hatha yoga, that I learned to calm my mind because at the end of every yoga session in your studio here, I could lay down in Savasana and I could experience a calm mind. And I think a lot of people are drawn to yoga 
yes, obviously for their body and their joints and, and all of that, but also in its most fundamental relationship of calming the mind and the connection of mind and body. And then when you really look at that, my fantasy is that, you know, in reading autobiography of a yogi that many of us have read, and there's that story of the guy, the yogi that was sitting on under a tree for so many years that the roots of the tree grew over his, his legs. And I'm thinking that in the original Hatha Yoga, people would feel this level of, of tranquility in their mind because their body had been stretched out, that they just decided that they would sit up, put their back up against a tree, and continue sensing what this mental tranquility was like, and that that's how meditation evolved. You just sat still with the pre-existing tranquility that you got from the yoga. Yeah. And but and then you from there you build into something bigger than the vipassana, the special mm. insight, and mm. and and then mm. satori as they call it in Zen. Mm. So nice, good. That's a good visual. I like the idea. I mean, it sounds a little scary to have roots grow over you, but that's that's a pretty deep posture right there to be able to hang. Let the roots grow. <laughs> yeah, but how many of those guys, and yeah. both men and women, were sitting up against trees and being eaten by tigers oh. and, and wild animals? So all of those yeah. legends we hear yeah, about yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, free lunch for a Bengal tiger. <laughs> this one made me laugh because you brought up the monkey thing. This is from the antaiji.org. It was number 10. To you who wants to begin with Zazen, once there were 500 monkeys in the service of 500 Buddhist saints, one day the monkeys decided to mimic everything the saints did, so they did zazen, copying the saints with their eyes, noses, mouths, and whole bodies. They say that in this way a thousand saints practice zazen and realize satori. This is why it's my wish to preserve, even if it's only through imitation, the seed of zazen. When you practice Zen, it has to be here and now. It has to be about yourself. Don't let Zen become a rumor that has nothing to do with you. Zazen is the Buddha that we form out of our raw flesh. I kind of like the idea of that. That, that, that idea of an, the, the monkeys imitating the monks. And then probably at some point, the monks would be imitating the monkeys. But that's a there's a lot there because then... The monkey mind, the existence of potentially evolution. Right. And yeah, that just made, after I read that, I just, I don't know, it just put me on a nice little, put you into a nice zone to help you get into a nice meditative state or just even start contemplating some of that, these ideas about what am I? Am I human? Am I an animal? What's right. my mind doing? Should I imitate people? I like that. Or is that how we learn? It sounds like what you're talking about in transmission. There's this like imitation of the teacher. Like until we actually get enough time in the saddle of practice, it's like just just imitate. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's what I've been doing. I've been talking to different friends that um, in the Zen tradition and having them send me photographs of their teachers in zazen and. It's just fascinating, the posture, because I always go back to Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, where he said the posture itself is enlightenment. So just imitate the posture of someone who's already gone through the process, mm. you know? Yep. That's cool. Yeah. Well, let's keep practicing, and uh, yeah. thank you. Thank you so much for... Uh, <laughs> 
coming on board again here in studio on a beautiful Florida day with some rain. We haven't had rain in ages, so when that rain started dumping today, felt so good. I've never the humidity is back. I sweated yeah. so many so much this morning um, during practice. And thank you, Michael. I'm just really happy to have this chance. I've it's been such it is such a pleasure to get to learn from you. I mean, on the massage side, the meditation side hanging out doing yoga, um, it just, it keeps getting better and better. So I'm, I'm just excited for this opportunity and, and thank you all for listening. Any final thoughts, Michael, before we sign off? Now I'm just grateful to you, Todd, uh, for this opportunity. Um, this is uh, officially the practice I'm doing here in teaching is the internship for my Upaya chaplaincy program. So I get to fulfill, you know, this internship uh, and I get to do what I love, which is to teach meditation and to do it across the street. And so I'm grateful to you and your wife, Tamara, and actually your whole family. I have a lot of gratitude. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining our discussion today. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to give credit to the music, Bryce Allen Band. Thank you so much for making us some fresh sounds for us. Check them out, BryceAllenBand.com. Remember, you can visit us at nativeyogacenter.com. I have a special for live stream. If you, no matter where you live, you can join with us some yoga classes and you can try us out two weeks free. Go on our website, nativeyogacenter.com. On the homepage, there's a link. Try live stream two weeks free. Click it and off you're off and running. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time, be well. Be well.